Hello and welcome to That Will Preach. My name is Jeremy Mills. I'm so glad to have you along today. In this episode, I had the privilege to sit down with Pastor Wesley McLean. Brother McLean was my wife's pastor. Whenever we met, this man has made such an impact in my life. Get ready. You do not want to miss this conversation. Stay tuned. If you're enjoying these podcasts, please go to iTunes, give us a five-star review, and leave a comment. This would help us out so very much. Thank you for doing that today. Also, you can go to anchor.fm forward slash Jeremy-Mills. You can find a link there that will allow you to support us for as little as 99 cents a month. Prayerfully consider this. It would be most helpful and appreciated. Thank you so much, and God bless. All right, and welcome back to That Will Preach. So glad to have everybody with us today. Today, I'm here with a dear friend of mine and a man of God who has influenced me and made an impact in my life, Brother McLean. Brother McLean, it is an absolute privilege to have you on the podcast today. Thank you, brother. It's my privilege. It's an honor. Well, uh, let me just go ahead and give you all a little bit of backstory. Brother McLean um, was the pat was my wife's pastor at the time whenever I met her and started dating her. And then uh, I come down a couple Sundays and, and you know, to, to meet her and went to Brother McLean's church and eventually decided, all right, I'm going to marry this George girl, but I got to go down there for a little while. So uh, come down to Brother McLean's and, and sat with him. Brother McLean, let's go ahead and give folks a little insight when we first met. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I thought you was a starchy reverend. <laughs> oh, Ruthie was a special is a special girl, and she's always been a live wire and loved people so much. And you were just the exact opposite. You were really conser- conservative and really starchy. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, you presented that professional preacher to a T. Oh uh, well. Which is not a bad thing. It was just not my Ruthie. No. It was opposite of Ruthie. Opposite of Ruthie. Yes. And kind of opposite of me. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And you kind of navigated us through that process. Did did our counseling services. Correct. Counseling services. And then you married us. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. During that time, let's, let's talk about during that time, uh, both of us was just in the process. I mean, I was just, I mean, I was still in church, and Ruth had, had come back to the Lord, and mm-hmm. you were in the process of, of some healing in her life. Right. And even myself, and though I you know, had the outer crust, you know, starchiness going on, I didn't realize how much I needed to be restored and for God to really do something in my life. If you just take a moment to, to talk to us about, about that interaction between Ruth and I and that ministry. Well, when when relationships dissolve, no matter what type of relationship, when relationships dissolve, it's one of the most traumatic things any person can go through. And we have been institutionalized to put ourselves up by our bootstraps and just go on, especially in the Pentecostal movement, to ignore the hurt. And by ignoring it, it's faith that we're speaking of and so so many times that happens in dedicated Christians 
and especially preachers like yourself, dedicated preachers like yourself, you, you knew you had or you felt, let me go back and say, you felt like you had to present that you had it all together or you would not qualify to be in the pulpit. Right. And that's one thing I can say you did perfectly. You put it on, but, you know, God, one of my few gifts, but it is one of my gifts, is to be able to tell when people are really, really hurting and knowing that. And, of course, I love Ruthie very, very deeply and was very, very protective of Ruthie. And so the last thing I wanted her to get involved with is someone that could not admit or see the trauma that was in their life. So I, my fear, if I should say a different way, but it was my fear sure. of you being a professional preacher, and I'm not being critical of you, but, but that you, I could tell that you had never been honest with the hurt that you felt. Mm-hmm. And that though you and Ruthie may have been a marriage made in heaven, that some point in time your trauma, if you didn't deal with that, and become real with that, that it would damage y'all's relationship and then ultimately damage both of your ministries. Right. And so that's just telling you how I saw it coming into it. And, of course, the great thing about you, Jeremy, I can always say is that you were uber-respective. You know, you respected me. You gave me the honor uh, that I held in Ruthie's life. You never tore me down. Uh, you built up everything about our congregation and about the ministry staff that we had. You never tore any of that down. And so that made it easy for me just to be myself and be, I was probably more transparent with you than I would have been another preacher that I was counseling. Sure. So in that transparency, I, I believe you and I was able to develop a relationship. S- slowly, we were both able to confront your your trauma, sure. how it affected you spiritually, and, and the needs in your life. I'm not talking about sin, so sure. none of your listeners think that right. you were a sinner. Yeah. But, but we can live without sin and still have things that we need to address in our life. That's true. That's true. And I knew with your trauma, if you spent the rest of your life hiding your your trauma, that it would be detrimental to your ministry. Yeah. You know, and for that, Brother McLean, I am, I am indebted to you, and I appreciate that um, so very, very much. Your influence in my life during that time Though I, I don't even think that I realized number one, um, the deep-rooted uh, issues that I had that I was masking behind. Uh, you had just such an elegant way of pulling that to the surface without being condemning. A lot of times we see things in people's lives, and the pastors that are listening to this, you know, you can look out that congregation either by observation or by revelation of the Spirit. Either way. You, you discern things in people's life. But there's a right way and there's a wrong way to approach that in those people. Yes. And, and your approach to them is, is, and when you acknowledge that to them in their life, is going to be the pinnacle point as to whether or not you're going to be effective in helping them. Once you approach them and they know that you know, 
That's that's the biggie. Um, if you if you do that correctly, then they're going to open up that window and let you look in and possibly open up the door and invite you in to their life to deal with those issues. And you have just such a beautiful way of a, the approach, the way you approach people and ministries um, that that have issues and, and hurts. And so I can I can give a testament to that. And I'll say I'll say that it has been. Not only it rescued me then, but it has been a great asset and a tool uh, that I use in now my second church plant when I deal with people. Um, and so when I look out there and I see issues before. Right, right. <laughs> but before it would have been, you know. I've got to, I have to attack this. I got to deal with this right here, right now. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would have been the wrong way. Mm-hmm. It's always the wrong way, regardless. Yes, sir. I mean, um, you know, Jesus said, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Exactly. And so you taught to me how to carefully approach people. And then when you see that invitation, then you walk in. Um, God, and I've always said this, and, and I get this from you, um, and I've said this many, many times, and my church people that listen to this will probably hear me and think, well, yeah, pastor says that a lot. God's not the SWAT team. Mm-hmm. He's not going to come kick down the doors and barge in and take over. That's right. Jesus said in Revelation, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If any man hear my voice, That's and easy. if he opens up to me, I'll I'll come in and sup with him. Um, the thing that I think we pass over that passage of Scripture is, and not to get off the subject, but... But Jesus said, I'll sup with him, comma. Right. That means whatever you push across the table, I'm going to take. That's right. He said, if you'll come in and let me, I'll sit down. And then I want you to present to me. He's not asking you to make anything. He's asking you to give him what you have. No matter how broken no matter how much how much or less how beautiful or disgusting right how how put together or how shattered it is he said i will sup with him i will receive whatever he has mm-hmm. and then when that's done jesus went on to say and he will sup with me that's right and then i'm going to push i'm going to take what you have and then i'm going to push across the table what i'm offering and isaiah said he offers beauty for ashes the oil of joy for mourning the spirit of, of, of joy for heaviness, you know, and so it's an exchange. And that concept that you put in my heart about dealing with people, I, I preached a sermon once or twice, and so to all those who are listening, here's a here's a sermon <laughs> tidbit. I preached upon that particular thought in that verse. I preached a sermon titled "The Day God Got Ripped Off," and. It's the day he saved us. Mm-hmm. He gets ripped off every time. Every time. It's every an unfair trail. It's an unfair trade. Mm-hmm. And what I did when I preached it, I went to my house and I brought a mason jar of ashes. And then I went to the bouquet store and I bought a, a dozen of roses. That's sweet. And then on the front of the table, I said, ours. And it was the ashes on this big poster board. And then on the front, it said, God's. And it was the beautiful bouquet of roses. And during the process... Uh, merged the two merged them and then i and then i switched them that's sweet we ended up with the bouquet of roses which were beautiful and he ended up with the 
the ashes. But And ashes, you think about it, ashes are just the byproduct of something burned. It's the residue of a ruin. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and so I, I uh, man, I appreciate you so much. Man, <laughs> well, that thank got you. real deep, real fit, real you, fast. You it? went to the sermon real quick. That's nice. <laughs> but also, one of the things in the same illustration that you're using, as far as also building relationships, first and foremost, you can't fake love. No. You know, and there is, and I'm not being critical of anyone, but there are those who. You feel it's a mechanical, you love me because you're forced to, or you love me. Uh, it, it seems forced sometimes. Yeah. So I, I think that's one of the biggest things is to realize I never had a problem of judging because I would never withstand anyone's judgment. Right. And I've always kept that to the forefront. And I know this is for preachers, so I have to qualify it. I'm not saying this is the right thing to do, but you're interviewing me. Sure. And what made me able to do that, not only with you, but with literally hundreds of preachers, hundreds of them. And most of the time, they were in very similar circumstances to yours, or even worse, something of their own making many, many times. And... I I always felt, except for the grace of God, there go I. And I know we do that with sinners, but we don't do it with saints. Mm. And, you know, it's an, it's an old adage, but if the self-same pressure at the self-same circumstances yeah. was put on you, right. what would happen? You know, and as far as relationships, I've been one of the most blessed men in all, all the world. My wife and I, can I tell that story? Sure, yes, we got plenty of time. Go ahead. My my testimony, you know, the uh, uh, I was a worldly, very carnal man. Did things that it, all the carnal men did: drugs, alcohol, very deeply. And on a one night, <clears throat> my ulcers ruptured <laughs> while I was driving a truck. I was drunk and high, and I got out to clean the blood off the windshield of the truck, and I passed out in a ditch. And that home that I happened to be in front of was the United Pentecostal Church pastor of that town. They come home from church, found me in this ditch, and unbeknownst to me, there were acquaintances scattered in my life that were acquainted with them, and they took it as their God-given responsibility, my salvation. And they loved me and loved me and loved me, but they loved me through all the ups and downs. And so it's nothing that I've learned or nothing that I do just within myself. Seeing hurting people and loving them, there's nothing else I can do. Yeah. Well, once you go through, once you have that healing in your life, you know, and I think the Apostle Paul kind of had the same testimony that you have. I mean, he, he stood at the feet of those who stoned Stephen. Mm-hmm. You know, and he said, I'm the chief of all sinners. Right. Um, and in one place, he said, at least I become a castaway. Um, and I think that, you know, in this era that we live in now, yes, we need good, strong preaching. I yes, mean, sir. We need Bible preaching. Right. Um, on holiness and godliness and separation and oneness and baptism and the Holy Ghost and, and all of this. But, man, we, 
we, we need it with full of grace and compassion. I heard someone say a few years ago, kind of goes along with what you're saying, and, I, and I've often thought about this. He said, there are truly not very many honest to goodness, mean and hateful people. That's true. He said, but what there is is a lot of hurting people. That's a good illustration. And because truly people want to be kind and they want to be treated that way. But man, they just struggling with a lot of hurt going on. And so many times, if we're not careful, we will have that pharisaical attitude, you know. Um, but you know, if I can interrupt you there, ahead. the pharisaical attitude, if we can see where it comes from, almost everything that we do wrong comes out of the atmosphere of fear or the spirit of fear. Sure. Pharisaical comes from that we've got to protect something. You don't have to protect the word. The word is powerful all by itself. Right. We can stand for truth and never be pharisaical because we're standing for truth without fear. Yeah. If I believe it and it's true, it's going to stand. So I don't need to get upset about anything. And at the same thing also is if I have fear, if I've been hurt, if my first wife left me, if, if my first husband left me, uh, we find it difficult for total surrender in our next relationships. Mm-hmm. That's birthed in fear. Sure. So not only is uh, our disconnect, as you're bro- pointing out now, not only is the disconnect, but also the inability to connect mm-hmm. for the church comes out of fear. And I, one of the things that I believe with everything in me, that God is not fear, and that if it's not love, the three Things he told us that's most important is faith, hope, love, and love. Yeah, You can't do anything with those. We can preach truth if we're not preaching it with all three of those. Right. We're not preaching. That's the truth. We've got to have all three of them. And I know there's been times in my ministry those three wasn't there. Yeah. And I'm sure if others would admit there's times, especially if you've had a pastorate of any length of time, and when people start swapping churches or when people start not buying into the vision, right? the first thing we do when people are not buying into our vision is try to, to, to either win them to our vision or separate them from the flock. Right. And it's because we're responding in fear. I, I think, and I, like I said, it may not be the right way to pastor, but it's the only way I knew how to pastor, is it's not my church. Mm-mm. These are not my people. Mm-mm. This is not my problem. Right. And I'm not doing this for anybody but God. Yeah. So therefore, it was easy for me to never do anything in love. It was always easy for me to do it in love. I didn't have a problem with the modus operandi of your decisions being made in fear. You know, and another thing that I was thinking um, as a side note off to that, you know, a lot of times ministers respond out of peer pressure. Oh, yes, sir. You know, while if someone comes over to my church and sees that I'm using this person. Right. Right? Right. And and, and I'm not using that person. You know, I, I'm going to be judged by my fellow ministers. Well, they must not believe, I believe fat meat's greasy. Right. right? You know right. what I'm saying? Yeah. And they're and, and we like, oh my gosh, I can't use this person who's who's truly 
probably in a better process of coming close to God than someone sitting there for 30 years who done dried up as a stump 20 years ago. Yes, if you remember, Jeremy, when you got the Holy Ghost, the first day you got the Holy Ghost, I know it was when I got the Holy Ghost, when I first got it, I was in love with everybody and everything. But the facts are, my life wasn't lining up with everything that I know to do. Right. And the trick to being a great Christian is to line those things up to be able to keep that pure, unadulterated, excited love with the fact of everything you do, do it in that. Yeah. And, and, and don't compare yourself with anyone else. No, no. Paul was adamant. That's the part that us preachers, we sin all the time in that. We're the worst sinners in that. We break that law consistently. Right. Paul said, do not compare yourself one to another. Man, I'm getting a little reverent here. Go ahead. I know, right? <laughs> and one of the one of the greatest mistakes is if we're if we're so concerned about the other ministers that come or visit or just hear about whatever. Oh, I can't believe this, that, and the other. Well, you know what? They don't know where that, how far that person has come. That's exactly right. And the right. process that they, you have approached them, they've opened the window, they opened the door, you're now sitting, you're breaking bread with them. They have come from a long ways. It really takes courage. People think that you're a compromiser when you do things like that. Of course, mine would be not to judge at all, but, you know, so we have to be, we have to calm ourselves. And rest in the fact of who we are, what we believe, and that God can take care of all of it. Mm -hmm. The scripture says, don't be in a hurry to go to court for what will you do in the end if your neighbor deals you a shameful defeat. When arguing with your neighbor, don't betray another person's secrets. Others may accuse you of gossip and you'll never regain your good good reputation. Yes. So the point is, is just let people enjoy God and grow in God. Yes. That is the greatest thing that we can do. And I think it's one of my greatest regrets is I wished I would have used people more. in those introductory modes more. Yeah. yeah. But I was guilty of what you presented. I know. Anything else you want to want to talk about that we... Well, that's the restoring part. Uh, I wish we could develop a stronger hide to restore ministry as a whole. Yes. Uh, when I read Paul, everything, when I read Paul's in his entirety, that that I want to do, right? I don't. That that I don't do, that I do. I do. <laughs> and he's up and down and sideways and... And one day he's confessing that I'm the most righteous man in the world, and then the next day he's, you know. You know, I've often quoted that scripture. As he wrote that, he paused. I, in my mind, I see he paused, and then he just slammed his hand down on the desk, and he wrote the, the latter verse. He said, ah, Oh, wretched man that I am. Exactly. That's Who beautiful. shall deliver me from this body of death? I mean, he's writing it. He's writing it. I'm struggling. I'm struggling over here, and then he just, ah. Oh, wretched man that I am. And that's beautiful. And so he's telling you in those words that you've just uttered, he's telling you that he he was literally still years later struggling, struggling. It was a fight. 
And we forget that. And when we forget it about Paul, we forget it about ourselves. Yeah. And we forget it about ourselves. It's hard for us to reach a hurting world. Well, this pandemic, and I know this might shift our conversation, but this pandemic has underlining depressions and anxieties in people that are just unprecedented. Yes, sir. When the isolation happened and this, there was just something about this that just really got a hold of people's minds. And it was just more than just an isolated event here and now. It just, to me, from my perspective, had we had really been an open book to ourselves. Um, and be more honest with ourselves. I preached Sunday um, to our church about the blinders you put on a mule. And I, my Sunday school lesson was about the secret sin. Uh, I, I said, you know, you put the blinders on the mule because you don't want him to look to the right or left. Mm-hmm. I said, but that's the wrong perspective when it comes to life. And I said, there are weeds inherent in my character and my personality I, mean, I can do everything that I want, but they still keep coming back. As long as I understand that and I keep attending those and keep cutting them down. But the moment I put blinders on and ignore it, then it grows up to become a problem. And and I think as ministers, we, and I said this in a podcast, two, two or three podcasts ago, and I used the word lied. I said we lie all the time mm-hmm. because we go to camp meetings and conferences and everything's great. And we ask somebody, "How are you doing?" No, I'm doing great. Well, really, you, half the people ain't paying tithes. You got two families that left. You're dealing with all kinds of stuff, and you're about to go nuts, and you want to quit and run off in the woods somewhere. But then we put on a fake plastic smile that's so paper mache, and say everything's fine and great. If we would just, you know, I, and I know there's a passage of scripture we do not adhere to. Yes, sir. Is to confess your faults one, one to, to another. another. My yes, sir. We do not. Mm-mm. No, no. And again, it goes back to the peer pressure. I don't want my fellow brother. But if we don't have somebody, well, it's deeper than that, Jeremy. And I'm sorry to interrupt. No, you. go ahead. It's deeper than that. It goes back to fear. Yes. I, I don't want to oversimplify it, but what you're addressing is fear. Yeah. I'm afraid you're not going to love me. A rejection. If you know me. Right. I'm afraid that the organization is going to reject. Uh, and, of course, some of that is deserving because ministers have shared with other ministers. And it backfired. And it backfired. But what we have to realize, it, that's the, it's only man that spread the gossip. Sure. Not on the man who did the confessing. Right. And if we as the confessor realizes, okay, God, you told me to confess. Yeah. I thought I confessed to a uh, godly man. He shared it, and now you've got a mess, God, to clean up. That's not my mess. Right. Just because it's my confession. Mm-hmm. Is that making sense? Oh, absolutely. It's my confession, but if someone sh- that I've shared that with biblically, and it becomes a problem, and I know that's why. It's fear. And that's one of my key key verses in the Bible is that we're weak. The body of Christ is weak because we haven't rightly discerned the body of Christ. And right after that, Paul goes into the lesson of confessing our faults mm-hmm. one to another. Facts are, I when I confess to people that I'm struggling, and many people will tell you that's poor leadership, and it may be. I haven't got a, a trophy case of successes in my history. So I may be doing it all wrong, but all I know, I am a stronger person when I am transparent with my brothers. 
Yes. So let me let me ask you, on a deeper, more spiritual sense, why do preachers not make these confessions to themselves and to God during maybe a time of prayer? Oh, that's a good question. You got any thoughts on that? No, I don't, because... Oh. I mean, God sees everything. He knows the number of hairs on my head, and that's just useless data. Right. 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 Exactly. It, it doesn't help. It doesn't condemn me, and it doesn't. It doesn't help me be. It just stuff. I he think knows. it comes from. He already knows. I think it comes from the uh, overload or the we bought into the positive mental speaking. Yeah. Uh, you know the positive speech right. concept. Mm, I believe so I much. I agree. That if we confess something negatively, we're confessing it into our life. What the fact is, it's already in our lives. So it's not going to be any more negative. Mm -mm. I don't think any of us are foolish enough to think that Jesus didn't already know. Right. But with confession, but the scripture said, but with with the mouth, confession is made to the salvation of the soul. Exactly. You, you understand? And that word soul, what is that? That's the intersection of the mind, the spirit, and the body. That's right. the soul. So your emotions, of course, us Pentecostals don't want to talk about that. Sure, no. Huh? Our past hurts and hang-ups and all of that that's popular, but our traumas, our emotions, and our flesh, and our spirit. So that Holy Ghost, that's that war that Paul was talking about right there. And us verbalizing, bringing that intersection from the flesh into the mind, right? allowing the spirit to deal with that, that's the, that's the act of confession. Mm-hmm. We not only are giving it to God, but we are feeding our soul to heal. Yeah. Because if we ignore what we're feeling, nothing ever good comes out of that. No. I can tell you, when I have been tempted, I am quick to say, God, I, I know I shouldn't be thinking what I'm thinking right, right now. That's embarrassing. I just broadcast it to ever how many pastors in the world. But at the same time, it keeps my soul healed. Yes. It's not something I have to fight later down the road. Mm-hmm. It's already fought. So we let these traumas build up that we don't confess. It's traumas, sins, temptations. We let them build up, and we never talk to anyone, especially even God. So, right. so the importance of that, the importance Man. of confessing it to you, confessing it in your prayer, is that brings it to that intersection. Mm-hmm. Without that confession, those three things keep interacting separately, without intersecting. Yeah. But when we confess them with our words. We are bringing it into that place to where our spirit and our body, our flesh, can deal. You know, when I'm sitting here listening to you think about that, and I thought about the act of doing that, and in, to me, I think it's more than just, I'm going to go in my time of prayer and think this in my mind or let it be a spiritual moment in my spirit. No, I think and feel like, your mouth has got to make that confession mm-hmm. so your physical ears can hear it. So your brain, I know that sounds ridiculous. You're speaking, but there's something about hearing your own voice mm-hmm. with your own ears say, God, this person, and you say their name. Mm-hmm. I am mad. I'm frustrated. I'm upset. I want to kill them. 
Okay, I want to wring him by the neck and want to punch him in the nose. They did this, such and such and such and such and such, whatever they did. Lord, this is how I feel about it. I feel blah, 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 blah. We could say the, we could say all of that in our mind. But I don't think it does I don't think it does nearly as good when we get down and put our nose you in the can't carpet. Break a, you can't break a biblical concept. You have to Confess say Confess it. it with your mouth. And there's and I, uh, you know, I've been there. I've had people hurt me horribly, and I just refuse to say their name in prayer. Mm. Just I just wasn't gonna do it. But I'm telling you, when I did that was the Reverend Jeremy. That's it. That was the bishop. <laughs> but the moment I began to say their name and what they did and how I felt and said, I forgive, right? I release. God, you deal with this. I, I, did, I can't handle this anymore. It just began to go away. And over months and months and months of doing that, it went away. And then one day I found myself saying, God, I'm asking you that you would bless so-and-so and that you would make them to prosper. And, you know, let me just say this to our listeners. If you are at that point, if you ever get to that point, don't be surprised if God answers that prayer and causes them to be blessed and to multiply and to prosper. All right. And then you're at that. And if you can handle their blessing, yes, that's even a greater testament that God has done. If you can rejoice over their increase, the, the one that hurts you the most. And I think that when people, when we as ministers overcome that, it, or as people, as people, when we overcome that, I feel like that spirit of unforgiveness has very little hold in our lives. And it's at that moment that we switch and we become a Brother Wesley McLean. And we can start to minister to people because we understand this process. And it's it's a very arduous and painful process. And it doesn't come overnight. No, sir. Um, but once we go through that and we see how forgiveness and, and healing comes through what we've been talking about, God can use us. But, but you know, people are hurting. Yes, sir. You know, and... So many times we think that the discernment of the gifts of discernment is, you know, coming in here and, and casting out, you know, a spirit, the devil, and getting the kids out and people rolling the floor. No, I, I have found that the spirit of discernment is is more prevalent during preaching when you just drop the plow and begin to deal with with the underlying issues that people are dealing with because. And I think the more that we deal with them on a personal level, the more that we're able to minister uh, to others. Um, I know it's happened to me more frequently the older I get, uh, probably the more sensitive I get. Of course, with me not pastoring now, I'm not under that day-to-day grind, but I've noticed that you sense that or you discern that, and I've literally just started crying while I'm ministering because that hurt. I may not know what the exact hurt is, but that hurt and people in the congregation connects and you just start weeping. And, so and you, I don't know about anyone else, but I feel like I'm weeping for myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's very important is to sometimes we 
No, a lot of times. We as Pentecostals uh, want to advertise the brass, the flamboyant, the oversized. Mm-hmm. And I'm thankful for the great magical things that I've seen, miraculous things that I've seen in my life. I'm thankful for them. But I have learned far more by just putting my arm on someone and just being overcome with the pain that that person's Mm -hmm. feeling and being able to pray. And the prayer comes out just as that person would be praying. Right. And that's discernment. Yes, I agree. Discern- I, I agree. I, I'm not saying pointing mm. somebody in the congregation, but I would say that should be the rare, rare, rare occasion. Rare. It, you know, and I said this on the on the podcast, the, my last podcast. You know, no one likes to be bossed. That's right. No one likes to be embarrassed. Mm. Everyone loves to be appreciated. That's exactly. And right. if you don't boss people around, and you never embarrass them. And you let them do. You let them know that you appreciate them. Those, and that's not just in ministry. That's in leadership, in any job, in any organization. If you don't boss people, you don't embarrass them. And every chance you get, you let them know that you appreciate them. They will go. They will bend over backwards to do whatever you ask them to do, or whatever you expect them to do. And if you ask them to do it, they'll probably do that and then some. The way that happened in my life, my my mom was the disciplinary in my house, and she would discipline me physically very, very strongly. My dad, on the other hand, never ever spanked me. Now I'm not being an an advocate for no discipline, but at the same time, my dad could just look downtrodden about something I've done, and I tried to move heaven and earth. Mm-hmm to change whatever it was that I disappointed him with. And it was because, you know, I felt that love, support, not that my mom wasn't giving it to me, but my dad just had that, that I want my dad to know I love him. Yeah. And that's the same way in any position, and especially as pastors with us being fathers of a Mm. congregation. Yeah. But we've got to keep it that way, too. We're not bosses. We're fathers, parents. Exactly. And we're just like parenthood. We're learning on the job. <laughs> uh, I, I know I probably shouldn't say this, but um, someone asked me if I went to seminary. I said, no, the Bible, Bible school, Bible college. I said, no. They said, well, how, how, how are you pastoring? I said, I'm making it up after that. <laughs> <laughs> but you see, they thought you had because you've got that reverend persona still. Oh, you're you're transparent now, but you still got that reverend bishop persona. <laughs> oh well, I don't I don't know if that's a compliment or insult. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt the podcast, but real quickly, give me one second. If you're enjoying the content that you're hearing here on that will preach, I'm asking you if you do me a favor. When this podcast is over, if you will forward the link to this episode or the podcast to a pastor, a youth pastor, a Sunday school teacher, a minister, a minister's wife, anyone that you think might be an encouragement. Also, if you could share this on social media, this would help us get the word out so more people can enjoy this podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Now let's return back to the episode.
<laughs> All right, so we're going we're going to switch gears okay. a little bit. So let's talk about study time. So the question is, what day do you study? Um, if it's a particular day, how often do you study? Say you were studying for one Sunday and you had nothing from zero. You have nothing. You have a date, maybe next Sunday, two weeks, whenever. Um, what is your routine of study time to, to prepare at ground zero for a sermon? My preference for study for ministering, my preference is to be studying full time. Not, I don't, I have rarely ever, unless I was put on the spot and someone said, I want you to speak on this subject mm-hmm. this week. If I am just ministering something, if they're allowing me to minister whatsoever I feel God's, God would like for me to, my, my life has always been, like as you and I were talking earlier, and you, we talked about the stars and the whale. J- Jason brought up the stars and the whale, and uh, you know that to preach. You know, sure. don't curse the whale. Right. So I will go home, and I'll write that down. Now I'm old-fashioned. I'm pen and paper. My file cabinet. I've had to add two, so I'm, you know, I've got many file cabinets. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'd write that down, and it, it would simply go in a file of title, and I'd put that in there. Well, as we were conversing, someone gave a scripture. So I'll, now that that's fresh on my mind, I will study that scripture. And I may make that as a, my scriptural context. Mm-hmm. And I'll write that scriptural context. So I have these files, titles, scriptural context, uh, illustrations, things that appeal to my heart or my mind or are interesting. And then at some point in time, there's a trigger that falls that says I, I get a piece of information and it, I say, ah, and it, then I go back and I just simply put those all together. Uh, I do study subjects. I do do, you know, uh, expository studies. Right. But you're asking how do I prepare to preach? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, re- I've always tried to teach you the ministers that were in my group is that you're always preaching every day of your life. Yeah. And so you need to be prepared to preach every day of your life. That's right. So allow life, God, to speak through you through life. I think that makes you more relevant because we were talking about it earlier. How did we bring it up? Uh, the relevant to uh, – all right, cut that. Yeah, what was it, Jay? We, that was what I said I really wanted to bring that up, and that's where we're at right now. Yeah. About ear, uh, how did you work? How did how was the question? What you asked the question uh, about having the ear of the co- no? Y'all know what I'm talking about? No, I'm, I'm, the pre- the present. You have to read the congregation. Okay, yeah, yes. Read your audience. Read your audience. Read, it, read in the audience. Right. Yeah. So you know we keep. So if we keep these things on a constant, if we're constantly preparing. And we're exposing ourselves to 
a multiplicity of personalities. Let me go back there mm-hmm. and address that. I think a very important thing for a minister's education and spiritual upbringing is to make sure he exposes himself to a multiplicity of personalities. Yeah. I am, my gift is love. My gift is giving. My gift has never been discipline. Right. I know I need to. I go, there's many failures in my ministry to where I didn't discipline soon enough. So I'm not discounting that. But I, I've always known that. Mm-hmm. So my friends, some my closest friends, would be someone you would call a disciplinarian. They right. run a tight ship, if sure. you describe their church. Sure. They run a tight ship. Those are my close friends. It's not because we agree on anything we do. They bring a balance. They bring education. Yeah. They bring that. They bring me growth. Mm-hmm. Because though it's, it takes effort for me to discipline a person, mm-hmm. to read someone the right act. Right. That's not natural to me. That is something I have to think about, pray about, force myself to do. So in my whole ministry, and you need to do that sometime in the pulpit. Sometimes you have to discipline from the pulpit. So I expose myself, and, and I'm confusing the situation. But this is about studying and getting ready for the pulpit. One of the things we do is we isolate ourselves to the people who like us and the people we like. And that's a big failure yeah. in improving our pulpit ministry. Yes. Let's expose ourselves to those that do it differently right. than we do. Right. You'll never, ever become that person anyway. No. It's an impossibility. Right. But you will gravitate closer to them, which is improvement in your life. So with that, when I come into a congregation having that everyday experience, my sermons growing, a daily growth process, when I'm in a congregation— I don't know if it's all spiritual or if some of it's spiritual and some of it's learned nature. You're going to have to be the wise one to dissect this, Mr. Interviewer. Yeah. But your congregation, they're not all the same. No. So if you have done this on a daily basis, you're able to come up with the illustration that's going to relate yeah. to that congregation, that's going to bring them and reel them in. There's sometimes, of course, when I'm teaching at marriage conferences and counseling and helping marriage counselors, teaching marriage counselors, you know, there's, there's times that I have to I bring to them the, the love and the understanding part that we talked today. But every now and then, I have to go back and I'm just factual. Right. And it all depends on who the congregation is. I just read facts sometimes. Mm-hmm. That doesn't come natural to me. But I read the congregation and what they need. And I have preached the same sermon this week twice. Last Sunday and this Sunday at two different locations. And I'm one who I write my sermons out in their entirety. So to go back it's been put together over a period of months. 
usually months, even years sometimes, mm. to where something finally clicks and, okay, now I can file this in a complete sermon file. Right. And now it's in the complete sermon file, and I still haven't preached it. So I don't have any of those. You've got to have some of them, brother. You've got. That's because you want to tell everybody everything you know every time you sit down. I'm teaching three sermons a week, man. I'm still working on, on Sunday, but on Saturday night. But that was one of the grinds I I refused to let myself get into. Yeah, I didn't ever allow myself to get into that grind to where uh, there was all. It just. I didn't make it work. I made it just life. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I always had several going all the time. And you, you were talking about reading the crowd. It, to me, you know, I've preached long enough to know, like, one time I preached a sermon on heaven. Man, heaven, right? That same sermon brought sinners to the altar and saints to the aisle. Yeah. Because the sinners say, I'm not going there. Mm-hmm. And they fall under conviction. And the saints like, let's get this party started. Right? Right. The same sermon, if you if you can deliver to me, you, it, you, again, it takes that discernment of reading the crowd. I can preach heaven to a way where it only appeals to the saint. Right. We we use in verbiage and our mannerisms and words the things they intent. understand. Sinners and, don't understand and preach it just to them and get them kicking down the chairs and and swinging from the chandeliers and the the, the sinners over here like what in the world are you talking about? But then you you could preach heaven to a way it, where it appeals only to the sinner. But to me, someone that is you know I don't know why I could put it, highly gifted in their craft of preaching. Mm-hmm. And anointed and long enough can preach that sermon to where it hits both and it ministers and it's effective to both the sinner and the saint. And I've had people. And that should be everyone's goal. Everyone's goal. And it's hard. It, it, it is difficult. It, it is, is difficult. Hard. I've had some sermons where you step down at the end of the, of the, at the, at the end down by the altar and someone's coming saying that's the best thing I ever heard. I'm charging hell with a water pistol. Right, mm-hmm. and then the next person—I mean, literally—the next person steps up to you, bawling and squalling and crying, and said, "You read my mail. That was just for me." And I'm like, "How in the world was that even a conviction sermon? Mm-hmm. How did they even put someone in the altar? Where mm-hmm. where did that come from? You know?" And to me, to me, that is where the operation of the gifts happen. And I, I don't think, I don't think that the operation of the gifts happen like we think. It does, you know, where the whole church goes silent and thus, and we have to say, thus saith the Lord. I know it doesn't. You, you understand? I'm not going to say I don't think. No, I'll I, say with confidence, I know it doesn't it, it, happen. And we have, we have, we have, if we're not we have careful. disciplined we'll, our people to. And our young preachers to relegate them down to saying, if this, if, if God, if you don't have the quotes, thus saith the Lord before it wasn't prophetic. Right. I don't believe that. I believe that the word of knowledge Definitely a word of knowledge and a word of wisdom comes in every single sermon. Yes, sir. Every sermon. We don't have time to waste on frivolous sermons and cute little lessons or messages of hype and people come in and unmoved and unstirred. In this generation, every Sunday. I've always sh- shook every Sunday or when anytime I get in the pulpit. I am scared to death. 
and I know we're not supposed to be, right. but I am. I have preached since I was 16, 18 years old, pastored for 34 years, 34 years, and I am still scared to death because in my soul I know today is the day of salvation. Yes. And I know it's God's work, but he chose me as the mouthpiece. And what if some carnality gets in the way of the hearing of the mouthpiece? Yeah. And I, to this day, I'll share something with you that's going to really blow this thing up. Go ahead. I have not I had not preached in four years. So you're interviewing a preacher that don't preach anymore. That's all right. Uh, I haven't preached in, since the last time I was here. Four years? Three and a half years. And simply, my sons are pastors, and their heart's my heart. Their style is my style. You know, I, unless God gives, God hasn't given me anything that I felt like I needed to stand up at my son's church and preach because they're pretty much hearing what they'd hear if I was preaching. So let the young guys do it. Sure. So, but our first stop on this Southeastern tour was Memphis. I preached for my brother-in-law. I literally stopped in the middle of the sermon. I felt so disconnected. I felt like I was disappointing God so much. I literally stopped into my sermon, and I did something I shouldn't have done. You know what it was? I said, I'll never get in a pulpit again. I have failed you, and I have failed God. Mm-hmm. Now, you're talking about transparency. I do take it to the nth degree. Sure. Now, did you say this out loud or to out yourself? Out loud. Out loud. That's what I mean. It was. I was in so much pain. Ooh. Mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, I felt that I had mishandled the Word of God and that I had not properly prepared myself. That the failure was not the Word of God, that the failure was on me. And I felt the need and the necessity to repent to God and to repent to those people. I should not have said, I'll never be in the pulpit again. I meant it. That's how much pain I was in Mm. because I felt like I would literally crossed the Rubicon. And that pastor, boy, when he got through with me, I'd been skinned. (laughs) Yeah. And and it was in love, of course, and it was good. But... He said that I had went to the pulpit desiring a predetermined response. Sure. Now, I disagree with him. I'm very honest with myself. I'm very honest with people. I disagree with him. I really did not have it in my mind what was to be a response. But what I did have in my heart was that I always feel a congregation. Mm Mm-hmm. And even if I preached a well-delivered sermon, which, of course, many people said it was outstanding, I never felt that I was ministering. I preached, but I never felt I didn't feel anyone else's hurt. 
I didn't feel anyone else's joy. I didn't feel like I'd ministered. Yeah. So I'm telling, confessing to whoever here on life that that's how severe it is with me still yes. to this day. Yeah. And uh, and I I I went back. I repented. Mm-hmm. Whatever it was, you know, and, and so many things, you know. God, did I put the time in it? You know, did it, did I did I was I not sensitive for this moment? Right. For this, and that's what we're talking about. Yes. This congregation was that the problem? And pro- the problem wound up being just me. I was deaf and dumb. <laughs> well. Uh, but that's the preparation that, is that just every day, and I don't, I, I'm not excusing not having a daily study time. There needs to be ex, uh, study time sure. on subjects particularly. Right. You need to dig subjects out. Yes. But you ask, my, I received the question you was asking to yeah. preach, how do you prepare? Mm. And I've never been one to say, okay, I have to preach Sunday. I need to come up with a sermon. And I think that's a good rule to live by because as a young minister, I found myself two different types of Bible study. Bible study for myself mm-hmm. and Bible study just for preaching. Right. Um, and I, I think, you know, that study to show yourself to prove. If we will read our Bible every day and just have a flow that God, that's what God will work through. Right. I, I think, but then on the other side of that, I think it also is a little bit dangerous. I don't know if that's the right word. You know, I would be hesitant if, if we're, as preachers to say, okay, I'm going to open up my Bible and this is just for sermons. And this oh, is not. Yes. For, no. You, you, that, you understand? Yes. Yeah. I'd never do that. No. You're, you're, but, but there are probably those that do. And I have, I've admit at my time in my life, it's okay. All right, I need a sermon, so let's just get to it, you know. Mm-hmm. Instead, but of, you wind up preaching at people, and not yes. At, that's a big you difference. You know, if I sit down and I'm looking for a sermon, if I was to do that, nine times out of ten, it'd be a sermon at me. Yeah. <laughs> so right. Uh, but yeah, that I, that is dangerous. I, yeah. I, in my opinion, I I know I agree. I agree. Because to me, if you do that, it's just your your mind just going. Where, where do I go? What? There's too much carnality to fight through. If you're, especially pastors, let me give this illustration. You're pastoring. Three people get mad and quit church this week, and they blame it all on you because of this, this, and this. You've counseled three people that's in marriage difficulty. Mm-hmm. You're bombarded with so much knowledge, carnal knowledge, mm-hmm. that if any you sit down that week for a sermon that week, blocking that carnality, it takes a very, very strong man. That's almost impossible. So that's, of course, with me counseling so frequently, that's, that's one of the reasons also that I got into that routine, because to make sure, you know, Confidentiality is something pastors need to hold dear. Absolutely. If someone told you something, mm-hmm. they told you and no one else. That's right. And and if you don't preach a sermon you built right on the back end of that, 
there's a good chance it's not going to get tied into your sermon. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing that I've noticed, if you have a particular person in your mind and you build a sermon around them and their issues, I'm going to tell you how much God loves those people. They're not going to be there that Sunday. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> because That's I good. cannot tell you, as a young pastor, I'm like, oh boy, uh-huh, mm-hmm, you're getting it this Sunday. <laughs> and build a whole sermon around this one issue, right? Yes. And that family or that person or those families, God loves them so much. They're going to get sick. They're going to have a flat tire. They're not going to show up. And they're, and you're going to walk to the pulpit saying, <laughs> all the wind has been taken out of my sail. <laughs> so I... God have, rescued you. <laughs> he saved them and he saved me. Yes. And that has happened enough times. That you've learned. Deliberately, I have learned. I try, and I can't say that things don't come to your mind, right? but I try to never, ever create a sermon around one particular person or issue in the church because they are not going to be there that Sunday. And then you're going to feel like you're at loss. And then, you did, and then you're going to, you know, it's just, it's just a plethora of reasons I, you why know, we shouldn't do God that. Feed, we say that we are feeding the congregation. Most good homes make a recipes, a day to what we're going to eat this week, and they make a grocery list, mm-hmm. and they go to the grocery store, and they buy for what they're planning on feeding their family that week so that they're ready. Now, it doesn't mean that's all their family's going to eat because there's other staples in the pantry. Yeah, yeah. So we have approach our ministry is feeding the congregation if we don't stay in advance of okay god what do you want me to feed this congregation next month mm-hmm. next you know we 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 can't be nearsighted of saying just this week and i know there's many 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 that study this week for Sunday sermon, and I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying that's that your way of doing. That's it. my way of doing yeah. it. And also going back to how to do something that many people would just disclaim in the Pentecostal movement. I have always practiced my sermons. Yeah, always. I like you, you recite them before. I write them in their entirety. Oh, in the word for word. Word for word. Word for word. I I and then I recite them until I can do them without looking. Yeah, and then, so, uh, so we'll go ahead. But but it, then the spirit guides as I'm preaching, and there's always things added or deleted. Right. But it's uh, that's that's my study habits and my summary delivery. Uh, I want to come back to that question, but then I also want to make a statement about you talking about subjects. You know, one thing. As, as preachers, we better make sure that when we read the Bible, say we are daily digest for our, ourselves. sometimes God gives us thoughts and impressions and revelations that's not for the church. All the time. <laughs> They're for us. Yes. And I'm telling you, there's been times then like, I read this passage of Scripture. By the time I get done, I can't even read it because I'm crying. I'm under conviction. I'm encouraged. Whatever the case is, I'm blown away by the revelation. 
And if I don't have that discernment, I'm as a pastor who's always looking for something to preach. I'm like, man, this this is the will of God. This is the will of God. I take it to the church, man, and I'm thinking it's going to be just barn burning camp meeting. It's the deadest. It's the most ineffective, driest, like because it was to you. But it was something I should have just kept that to myself. Yeah, you know, there's been times I've been behind the pulpit. This is terrible. I even admit this. But since you're honest, see, I can be honest with you. Right. Right? See, We're practicing. Easy? We practice in what we began this <laughs> podcast with. There has been times that during one of those cases. Testing, cases, testing, ready for Jeremiah, Jeremy to confess. <laughs> he blew it away. <laughs> I have been behind a, a sermon, uh, behind the pulpit preaching. And it was so dead, so dead. I felt no anointing. People were yawning and falling asleep. Babies were crying. I think the angels just went on vacation, okay? Literally in my mind, I said to myself, I cannot wait till this sermon is done so I can leave. <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, this is dead. Well, what I did is I did. I quit waiting. I said... <laughs> Congregation, I for I failed. I literally said, well, that's, I "Congregation, that's I failed you, mm. and God, I failed you." And and uh, someone says, "Well, you ne- you know, you shouldn't do that." But it's the truth. Well, I, I'm telling you, I said in my mind, "Man, I cannot." Let wait me get I'm out of done. here. I am making a beeline for that door. I am out of here. This is this is horrible. Pride is a hard thing to deal with, isn't it? Ain't it though? Ain't it though? That's, that's the truth. And and we'll say this, and then I'm going to go back to your sermon notes, and then we're going to end end on something here. Um, you know, one thing that I've noticed, and I've noticed this in the past year, year. Um, my sermon subjects. Well, let's go. Wednesday night and Sunday Sunday morning and Sunday school. Well, even the sermons. I tried in the past 12 months, and it has helped me so much. I stopped trying to dig out these deep theological apostolic nuggets. I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah, yes. You want to I, say I, something I, I, that that's profound. That that's that goes with your provoking. That goes with your title. That'll preach. You want something to come out that yeah. says well, you that'll want, you, preach. And I guess it was a, a, a it could be a, a prideful thing that like I want people to say I've never heard that before. Yeah. Man, I've never thought about that before. Whoa, right? That's a lot of pressure to put on yourself to try to, and I'm going to use the word perform, to perform that kind of preaching every Sunday. Mm-hmm. So about a year ago, the Lord began to deal with me about that. And I said, okay, then what do I do? And he said, simplify. Preach and teach on things that are simple because in them, number one, people can relate, they can understand, and it has a deeper truth than what you realize and so I've preached some of my most enjoyable sermons that I've preached in the past year. I've preached on the word hope. Hope. Okay? I've preached on peace. Um, I've preached on uh, just just simple. And, and I'm not saying simple as in uneducated simple. I'm, I'm saying as in... But then I, then I found that, wow, some truths come out of those subjects 
You know, because you pull a string in the Word of God and it's going to unravel somewhere else. Right. And um, I've just found that, you know, keeping it simple. You know, I heard someone say, keep it simple, stupid. Keep it. Yeah, the KISS syndrome. Keep it simple, stupid. And that has been, you know, not. That's what they taught us in Bible school anyway. Keep it it simple, stupid. Just keep it simple, you know. And so to some of our listeners. But once again, you read the congregation. Yeah. There's a time for that. If you're preaching a rally. Or a camp meeting. Or a camp meeting. It might uh, be a little different. That when you're preaching, you read the congregation. Right. On your Sunday sermons, you're trying to win the loss. Yes. All right. So let me ask you, we're going to kind of shift gears and we're going to try to land this thing. Uh, you spoke about your notes. Mm-hmm. So do you do a tablet? Do you have handwritten? Or do you type it and print it out? So what's what's the Wesley McLean? Most of the time, it's... it's uh, Folded paper that I've handwritten. Handwritten. I make a fold enough copy paper together that will hold the whole sermon. Yeah. And it's handwritten. Uh, every now and then I'll type. I'm very still computer illiterate. Yeah. And uh, sometimes I just get frustrated with it. But uh, so since I'm writing my sermon, I'm not writing notes, I'm writing my sermon. I found it easier for it to flow mm. as w- with me mm-hmm. handwriting it. I do on occasion go back and type it. Yeah. But for the biggest part, I, in my preparation, I handwrite it so it flows in my thought process. How many of those handwritten sermons that have not been typed up do you have? Thousands. Thousands. Yeah. You know, one thing that I'm, you know, and to all of our listeners that are listening today, one thing that you know back in the day elders to to type out their sermons that was just kind of a big deal it's a typewriter snap 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 right. snap snap right and then you only had that one copy that was it yeah and then it was just a big deal but now <clears throat> I, i'm a big i'm a big promoter of young men going back and getting their elders sermons yes and typing them things up putting them in a digital form, putting them on some somewhere, because we are now having elders that's going on that they're taking with them to the grave decades and decades of wisdom and knowledge and sermons that could that we could be a great archive of of sermons for the future. On this that recently happened to me. I was talking to my middle son and I thought I'd already delivered him several cases, boxes of those sermons. And uh, he made me know that I hadn't. Mm. So they were in file cabinets. Of course, we've moved across country. So they were in file cabinets still in storage. And I, what you're saying, I'll testify to. I, I was very disappointed when I pulled them out of the storage, and many of them, some of the ones that I would love for my son to preach, were they damaged? And, yeah, they were damaged, you know. And I would like for him, there are sermons that I feel like he could preach sure. twenty years from now, and uh, mm. so. But so I have in the process. Actually, it's funny that you bring that up. I'm in the process of trying to get that done. 
uh, as a gift to my my sons. Sure. And I think something like that, Brother McLean, could be turned into a book or a book series. Mm-hmm. Um, not that you want to make, you know, be rich off your, but to share with the other upcoming generation. Right. Um, I intentionally try to type all mine out, I think, and I put them on, on a Google Drive, and I've got, you know, I've got one preacher that I just, you know, he has access to that. He can go in there and, and just take what I would like to do is, I'm not saying mine's worth having, but to have a you know a way for preachers to share their sermon notes and for other people to be able to come in, not that you're going to preach someone else's sermon word wait for minute, word. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Let me, yeah, let me interrupt you there. There is no one that's preached someone else's sermon. No, it's all either God's word or it's not. Right. And if a preacher gets up and proclaims to the congregation. It is no more than Paul proclaiming to the Corinthian church or Paul proclaiming to the Galatian church. And every one of us have re-preached Paul's messages. Every one. So I think it's very selfish of us to think I've preached my, my sons while they were in Bible school. One of my sermons was preached by someone else. Mm-hmm. I took it as a great, great compliment. Sure. And he was laughing because he was telling everybody what was next, next, and next. And I, I let him know that's not my sermon. Mm-mm. Because, once again, if you're living, building sermons every day, I have to confess, you know, those have come from things I've heard. Right. Things from other done, preachers. Other preachers. I've read this book. And sometimes over a period of a year or two years, ever how long that particular part of the sermon is laid in my file, sometimes, you know, the it's not that you're wanting to plagiarize. Right. It's not that you're wanting to think people or you're more of yourself. Uh, so, yes, you know, I think that's a great idea. I think the more, more that we allow people to read our sermons, hear our sermons, mm-hmm. and give them not only the opportunity, but give them our great kudos. Mm-hmm. If you think this is good and you think your congregation needs it, please preach it word by word. I had a man text me yesterday and said, I have went on YouTube and listened to a sermon that I preached called There's No Blood in the Golden Calf. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. And he said, Man, Brother Mills, he says, I've gone back and I've listened and listened. And he says, I've listened so many times. I'm going to use it and make a sermon out of it. Well, I text him right back. I said, well, if I have the notes, I'll email you. What's your email? Right. He emailed me. I looked in Google Drive. I don't have it. Now I remember it's handwritten. I said, well, I don't have it at the moment. But if I ever, you know, which I'm going to make a, 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 an attempt to do it this week or probably next week, you know, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to type that out that, that I have, and then I'm going to email it to him. Um, and I think that having our elders' sermons have are just been a great. I mean, you think about Matthew Henry. Oh yeah. I mean, you, I mean, I got his books, and they take up that much space on my shelf. Someone had or Spurgeon, right? You know, those those sermons are word for word. Yes, I got long winded. You're talking about two two and a half right. hour sermons, right? Like this podcast. Like this podcast. <laughs> We're going an hour and twenty five minutes right now, <laughs> but. Even just uh, the last time I preached, which, like I said, was three or four years ago, there was a gentleman that taught at our men's conference at our local assembly. 
and it was so good. I was bawling and squalling. I was in the altar. I was the first one at the altar. It was so moving. It was so powerful. And it moved me so much that I could never, ever get that sermon out of my mind. Mm. It was so powerful, and I felt that every person in the world, I wish they could hear this. Right. So I asked the minister, I said, I would love to preach this sermon if I ever preach again. I don't, matter of fact, I told him, I don't know, think I could preach anything else but this sermon because sure. right now it's screaming to me. Yeah. And he did the exact same thing. He gave yeah. me his notes in his entirety. Yeah. And of course it came out differently. Sure. But it was nonetheless powerful. You know, I cannot tell you how many times I've preached somewhere and someone come up and say something. If my notes are printed, I'll reach right out and, give it to and just hand it to them right there. That's very nice. I, I always make a, you know, I say overlook all typos, bad grammar, and misspelling. The reverend will come out. <laughs> <laughs> don't think bad of me. Don't judge me. Oh, no. Well, I don't. You ask Ruth. I get the worst grammar. I got the worst spelling. I mean, if it wasn't for Google giving me suggestions. It's so bad sometimes Google says no suggestion found. I mean, it's that bad. You know, I tried to preach one of your sermons one time, and it was so structured I couldn't do it. (laughs) Oh, good. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. So, Brother McLean, I just want to say it has been a privilege. It's been an honor to have you sit down and talk with me today. I am. uh, This has just really been a lot of fun and something I'll remember forever. Uh, thank you for taking the time. Well, thank you, sir. I have uh, felt the great thrill of being with the nice, nice, high, most honorable Bishop Jeremy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, folks. But uh, I just want you to know how much I love you. I appreciate you. I appreciate your wife and your family and your ministry. What you did for me and for Ruth has had lasting effects, and um, it will continue to uh, for, for many, many years. And so to be able to sit down with you today has just been a great honor for me. Well, thank you. And you know, that's one thing we didn't talk about, but I'm glad you brought it up. We won't accomplish anything without our wives. That, that's, that's right. That have been so in the ministry, especially in the pastorate. There is no one, unless they've been a pastor's wife, their load is harder and heavier than ours than ours yes and so thank god for, for good women for our women yes yes sir so we're going to end on a sermon thought in tradition want to give everybody so if you got your pens and paper which i know you probably have already been taking notes on this podcast today but uh brother mclean we're going to end with you giving us a with a sermon thought something that we can uh, that we can preach kind of chew on well, Jeremy, what I've been talking about about a lot lately is you said it was a simple thought, but when you you know, our listeners may not know, but I've struggled with severe poor health as a young man, and doing that day by day, I wake up and I have faith that God's going to heal me today. I know God can, but over a period of time, I have to confess that that hope diminishes. And I was reminded of an experiment that 
Dr. Kurt did back in 1950. He had uh, some Netherland mice that he built a, uh, a lab with a large tub that it's impossible for the rats to get out of. And he filled it full of water and threw these wonderful, great swimming rats into this tub. And he let them swim. And they swam. And they swam strongly 10 minutes, 12 minutes. But when it got to close to 15 minutes, they started frailing. There was no rhyme or reason to their strokes or anything. And after about 15 to 18 minutes, every one of those rats died. Well, the next day, he did the same experiment, filled the pot full of water, threw the rats in. This time, they did the exact same thing, strong swimmers. But at about 14 minutes, when they were beginning to start to frail, he reached down, pulled every one of those rats out, dried them, let them rest, warmed themselves, and gave them substance. The next day, he repeated it. He repeated that, exor- that exercise about four times. And on the fifth day, he threw those rats in there. And those rats that had died the first day after swimming just 15 minutes, those rats that he had put into that test the next three days that he would pull out after 12 minutes, dry them, take care of them. On that day, they swam for 60 hours. No. And the only difference in the rats were not health, was not heart capacity, it was nothing physical. The only difference in those rats was that they had hope somebody was about to pick them up. Mm. The Bible says it's faith, hope, yes, and love. Yes. I forgot that in my struggle over the past years. Because if God didn't do it for me today, I don't know why God keeps me in my struggle. I don't know. I know he can, and I'm looking for him too. But what he has showed me over the past few weeks is that I've lost my hope. Because hope, the very word, has a little joy to it. Yes. And the one writer, I don't have my notes before me, so I'll I'll make reference to him. He said, uh, uh, I'm not an optimist, but I am a prisoner of hope. And I see myself as that little rat. And over the last 12 years, and over your ministry and my ministry many, many times, it looked like we were going down, but God picked us up. He didn't fix the situation. We're still in the pail of water, but he picked us up just enough to give us hope. Now, scripturally, I bring that to when do most people lose hope? When I have nothing to do with the causal effect, if I didn't sin to cause my trauma, if I didn't do something wrong for the bad things, that if, if the bad things that are happening in my life are not punishment, that I had nothing to do with it, just happenstance, I keep hope a little better. 
But when I've done something wrong, and I, I have failed God, failed mankind, failed my brother or sister, and it has caused hurt or damage, it's hard for me to hope to be delivered from that. And so I think that's most Christians' problems, is we can hope for deliverance when it's not our fault. But that's not what the Word delivers. Jeremiah wrote the saddest book in the entire Bible, Lamentations. But before he wrote that book, he wrote the book of Jeremiah. And through the entire book of Jeremiah and the first three chapters of Lamentations, all he did is hammer the children of Israel. You're here because it's your fault. You sin. You're horrible people. You've left God. You're reprobates. You're idol worshipers. And he even goes to him on, his own self and says, my, down, my downbringing was my own fault. And he's just constantly hammering that. Scripture after scripture after scripture. Read it. Jeremiah was pounding himself and pounding Israel. But in chapter 3, something changes. He's going through that. And he's saying... Uh, he says, he has made my teeth grind on gravel. He, he reminds us one more time how hard his life is. He said, he made me cover in ashes. Then he says this, so I say, my endurance has perished. What's he saying? I've lost hope. Mm-hmm. I've lost hope because this is my fault. This is my people's fault. But his next words... He says, my endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. That's when he's remembering all the things that they have done wrong. But then, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast of the Lord, steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Jeremy, on the hardest days, we need to go back and look to God because our hope is not in our successes nor our failures. Our hope is in the Lord. And for those that are struggling with things, mistakes they've made, hurts that they've caused, go ahead and repent of it and then remember the Lord. And if we remember the Lord, the only thing that can happen is we'll have hope. Folks, all I'm going to say today from Brother Wesley McLean is that will preach.